Well, good morning, everyone. It is great to have you here today. Thank you for joining us wherever you are, whatever room you're in, and wherever you've tuned in as we begin our fall series, Remarkable. And it's been great. I've been hearing some stories already from our intro message last week of remarkable behavior. I even heard an account of somebody's house a few weeks back who actually had been hit by one of the tornadoes that came through our specific area as a storm got close um, over the past week or two, they had remembered the account of the remarkable series. And uh, the father said, Chris, I was just about to go, get everybody in the basement and yell with kind of it. But I know my, my one daughter's a little anxious. And I thought, <clears throat> I thought about the pilot in the plane speaking calm. And I went, boop, <laughs> and went, hey, guys, we're going to be fine. Let's just keep an eye out. And uh, he goes, but when one hits your house, it makes you feel a little different the next storm. I said, yeah, that is remarkable that you caught yourself and spoke calm. And, and we learned last week specifically, as we leveraged the airplane illustration, when turbulence comes into the cabin and people start calling around going, I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I don't know. What this, when, when there's a voice that goes, boop, hey, everybody, this is your captain. We're going to be fine. I look ahead, sunny skies, we're going to be landing, look forward to talking to you on the ground. It does something remarkable. It sets a calm in the entire plane. Now, as believers, we see in Scripture that when we talk, it should sound different, come across different, even, can I, can I argue, be remarkable. Our, our conduct is to be walking in wisdom our conversations is to be seasoned with salt. And our clarifications are to be ready to be able to defend with great graciousness and respect what we believe. Now, this week, I want to walk onto a bus. Anybody ever have to ride a bus? Some of the young people, I just engaged you in a bad way. Stay with me. Oh, the bus. I hear stories. I've been home on the bus for like an hour and a half. I want to tell you about a young man who went into seventh grade middle school. At that time period, um, it wasn't sixth grade was in middle school, so he came in in seventh grade into middle school. And he came in with a wonderlust for life. Oh, he, he loved, loved toys still. He, he was one of those kids who, who, who did what his mom and dad said to do. He, he went to church with them. He was, he was still enjoying a nice Lego set. He, he followed what his mom asked to wear at times. He got his new sneakers on, his big glasses and his Buster Brown haircut, and onto the bus he went to middle school to be eaten alive. This young man, as he walked onto the bus, did not realize what that year would be like. He, he would go to his seat, and, and he'd hear chuckling and things like that, but he wasn't sure what it was about. But he soon found out as the year went on, he had become the target of a group of guys in the back. His backpack was never cool enough. The logo on his sneakers was never the right logo. The size of his glasses were pointed out continually. Hey, is your mom okay? Hey, munch, all sorts of name-calling. Young people, have you ever seen anything like this? I'm sure you have. Some of you just said, young people, you want to come to my workplace? And it just kept coming and coming and coming. But I want to tell you about this particular seventh grade boy. 
What walked on the bus in the beginning of that school year was a kid full of life. But the constant verbal jarring began to suck the life out of that great little guy. He began to worry about everything he wore. He began to beg his mom for contacts instead of glasses, for they picked on them all the time. He started to believe some of the things they would say. They would even say on the way home today, you better do this, you better do that, or you're a wimp. And so he got doing things that were uncomfortable for him because he's just trying to survive. You know, when anxiousness takes grip, especially of a youngster, one of the things that can happen is they start to lose their appetite for food. It's heartbreaking for a parent to watch. They, they start to shell up more and more and more because they're battling against what they feel is inconsequential, that it's just gonna keep coming. This young man began to make up excuses for why he was sick. They were fake excuses, but he was trying to avoid what he was dealing with in a daily, daily thing. You know, it all came to a head when he even began to develop a nervous tick. Does anybody know what a nervous tick looks like? When, when a young person is going through tremendous anxiety that now they're even beginning to create in their own head, they can sometimes manifest that with body motions that are out of their control. It, it, it's actually something others see, and of course, Middle schoolers don't necessarily think, let's not point that out. They point everything out. It came to a head one day when the bus was stopped and it was time to get out. And uh, this young man got up and somebody tripped him. And he fell in the middle of the aisle. Now, nobody wanting to mess with the boys that mess with this guy, this young man, you know, the girls were at least polite and stepped around him. But some of the guys didn't do so much. And, and as he's laying in the aisle, from up front, the bus driver got on the microphone. Hey, knock that off. Knock it off, everyone. Now, you would think a person of position, a person that's driving the bus, a person of credibility, an adult, I mean, Everybody's going to listen to them, right? Young people? Nobody listened. In fact, one of the guys stepped on his backpack, stepped on him, and laughed at him as he stepped over him. That young man recalls that foot going on his back and then hearing another voice. It was from an upperclassman who wasn't a bus driver, but who was a pretty strong kid on that bus. And he went, hey, get off him. Leave him alone. Get up, bud. You're good. Let's go. He walked him out. And you know what happened in that bus? It was remarkable. They all listened to him. It was as if his voice was something that they would listen to. And because of it, there was a change, not only in the bus that day, but in that young man's life. It was as if someone whispered hope into his life as he walked out of that bus with somebody going, you're okay.
You know, I don't know where you're at today in life. But I bet there's some people who have walked in here with some past wounds that people have said to them. I bet there's people who walk in here that can still go back to days where they felt like a misfit or a, or a failure or a loser. And somebody defines you. And for whatever reason, their voice is important to you and you're not even sure why. Maybe there's somebody in here who feels so rejected and so left out that they never anticipate anything good to come of the future. If you're listening today, I believe a sovereign God asked you to tune in today. Because there is hope for everyone who faces worldly rejection and defeat. And when believers step out of their comfort zones and offer hope and encouragement to those who might be berated by some of the things of this life, we don't do something wonderful. We do something remarkable. Have you had the chance to encourage someone who's defeated? Do you know someone in your life who is so defined by what other people say, it's like you're talking to a wall? Well, I hope today brings you encouragement. For our series is written to a group of people that were being bullied, that were being ostracized, that were being left out, that were being rejected. But our series this fall offers hope for that life. And so, if you're here today, and when I offer an opportunity to change, you hear voices in your head, maybe not audible, I hopefully not, that say, you can't. You're a failure. You're a loser. You remember what your dad said. You remember what he said. You remember what she said. You know what your mom thinks. Whatever voice you got in your head. You know what your boss says. You know what the government says. You know what your friend at school says. You know what the kid on the playground says. You can't change. That's who you are. You are rejected, misfit. There's no hope for you. You won't change because of one sermon. Well, I hope the Holy Spirit whispers into your ear today and says this. Say I won't. Let's begin our series. Grab your journals. Get your Bibles. We're going to 1 Peter. We're calling it Remarkable. The book of 1 Peter, it starts out, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for the obedience of Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling of his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Whoa! That's incredible! I mean, did you just read that? If you read the Bible and go, oh man, I'm... Buckle up. Because that is one of the most exciting things I've ever read as a believer. Let me prove to you how remarkable that is. But first, let me start with context. What is the context of 1 Peter? Well, let's go back to Rome. The Caesar, Nero, is now in charge. And he has this game plan. He's going to get a group of arsonists okay, to start burning down Rome. And when they burn it down, he's going to replace it with facilities that he desires. 
Here's one of them. Does anybody know what this facility is in ancient history? This is none other than Circus Maximus. It was some 30,000 people that sat in this big stadium, but Caesar Nero burned it to the ground so he could put up a 100,000 seat theater where in these very walls, he would kill Christians for sport. Within his agenda of burning the city down and replacing it with his empire, people started to think, is the government doing this on purpose? And, and all of a sudden, they were developing some thoughts that, hey, I actually think Nero's behind this. So Nero needed a scapegoat. So you know what he did? He thought, I'll blame the Christians. I'll blame the Christians. They take communion and drink blood they talk about of this Jesus or something. Didn't quite understand it. He goes, they're clearly cannibalistic. People will believe this. And, and he said, it's the Christians who are doing this. And he turned the masses against Christians. And, and you know what he did to just continue to push his propaganda? He would point out the believers who were behaving the worst and, and were behaving like monsters. And he'd say, that's what they're all like. They're all like that one. And, and he'd lump them into this massive, you see, they're all crazy like that one. Everybody's like, these believers, they're crazy. And he pushed this and pushed this to the point where he was killing Christians and hanging them in the streets. How vulnerable. Some of you are seeing countries right now, they're extremely vulnerable. Some of you may feel like you're living in one that's extremely vulnerable. And the believers are feeling this anxiousness. Their faith is, is, is getting rattled a little bit. Are we crazy? Do we believe in something stupid? I mean, the world says we're weird. What are we going to do? And into that world, Peter writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Oh man, how cool is this? Let me get out my remarkable pen. Peter, note he didn't write Simon. Simon, a typical fisherman. He, he was out in the Sea of Galilee and Jesus came and called him. And not only did he call Simon, he said, Simon, you know how you fish for fish? I'm going to have you fish for men. men. I'm going to do something great with your life. And he redefined him. And he said, your name is Simon. From now on, you will be called Cephas, which can be translated rock, which can be translated Peter. And when, and when Simon was behaving the way that God wanted him, you'd often hear Jesus call him Peter. And when, and when Simon was kind of behaving like his old self, Jesus would sometimes go, Simon, to get his attention. Come on, you're Peter. It's as if in a world that defined him as just a fisherman named Simon, Jesus says, I come along to redefine people. You will be Peter. He says, Peter, church that's out there feeling targeted, feeling like people are against you. Peter, I'm an apostle, which means what? It means sent one, which means he's sent by somebody. Who? Jesus Christ. What does that make him? An ambassador. 
I was told to write fast because you'll misspell if you don't, and I think I just did. So we have Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, who is now an ambassador of Jesus Christ. He's a sent one. Is this important? Folks, this is extremely important. And I'll tell you why this is impactful for your faith today. Peter is calling himself an eyewitness. What you have here in the beginning of this book is a remarkable eyewitness. This is so huge because if you want to authenticate any activity from the past, you need to have eyewitnesses. It's what separates things from being fiction or things from being truth. If you're out there today and you sometimes wonder if the account of Jesus Christ is something that's a little stupid to believe in, I'm glad you came today. Because the world wants you to believe you're reading a mythical moral fiction book. And that the disciples are nothing more than mythical figures writing about this Jesus that a bunch of people who need religious as their crutch need to depend on to get through their struggles of life. That's what the world wants you to believe. But I want you to step back from that and go, wait a minute. What I've based my faith on has remarkable eyewitnesses. Why is that important? Well, let me introduce you to a word, if you haven't been introduced to it yet, called apologetics. Okay, Apologetics, by definition, carries the idea of an intellectual defense of the truth. Yes, you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, but it does not lack intellectual defenses. It doesn't lack reasoned arguments or justifications. It has all of those things. You're not just reading moral fiction. You're reading accounts of eyewitnesses. You know what's really interesting? When you read something outside of scripture about those time periods, people believe it. If it's the Bible, they figure it's an agenda that's been manipulated to get to people so that we can go through our faith. And so what I'm going to do today, I'm going to refer to a lot of secular documents referring to the life of Jesus Christ. For for some reason, we believe those more. And I'm going to show you that apologetics can really stir up a strengthening of your faith. How many watch Dateline? Don't raise your hands, okay? But how many of you watch Dateline? And that one guy with like kind of the eerie voice, and they were going that day, and you're like, you know, and you're watching this, okay? It's all about these homicides and different things like that. And, and, and there's one detective they almost always interview. It's, it's unbelievable. He's kind of famous. He even has nicknames. He's so famous. His name is J. Warner Wallace. Have you ever heard of this guy? Jay Warner Wallace. He is like the date time, date line. He's been on Fox, everything. You've seen him all over the place. And he says one of the keys to figuring out a homicide is to be able to investigate the facts from a non-prejudiced view. He's brilliant. He has nailed so many cold cases that they give him cold cases. Young people, a cold case is a murder or something that happened in the past. They weren't able to solve it. They put it in a file, put it away, and there are certain homicide detectives that go get those cases, pull out all these historical documents of eyewitnesses from the event, all the documents they have of it, and they go through it, and they figure it out. He's brilliant at it. What many people don't know is his testimony. He was, a, he was a proclaiming atheist for years. 
And he decided, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take all my abilities as a homicide detective, and I'm going to go at these four gospel accounts. And I'm going to put them through all my rigorous tests, and I'm going to treat the resurrection of Jesus Christ like a cold case. And I'm going to investigate this murder. And I'm going to investigate from the tools that I use, and I'm going to see what's happened. He has now become a believer, and he writes, I'm not a Christian because it works for me. He's a Christian because he studied the case and found it to align with what he puts to the test when studying cold cases. He says, here's the first thing you want to make sure you do. You need to assume the witness is trustworthy. If you walk into church going, I don't think this is trustworthy, you'll bring a prejudice to this book that you might not otherwise have if you come into it like a homicide detective would studying a cold case. I can't bring prejudices. If the witnesses have not been proven untrustworthy, then I should trust them until otherwise discredited. He said it's a massive mistake so many homicide detectives make. They have a prejudice when they look at the cold case, and it hurts them. I bet that guy did it, and it hurts him, he says. You need to stay free of that. Second, he says, disagreeing, disagreeing testimonies don't disqualify. He said, countless, countless of homicides, when I've talked to witnesses, they will sometimes forget details and fill them in later. He said, they're human beings. They also see things very differently. He said, I can have a 40-year-old mom and a 24-year-old young man see the same account, and I'll get different details. The young man noticed he was wearing a pair of Air Jordans. The mom didn't care about his shoes. She talked about how he made her feel. And so he said, I put together the accounts based on how eyewitnesses viewed it through their perspective. We all look for different things. He said, so when they disagree, that doesn't immediately disqualify it for me. So when I look at the gospels, he said, and I saw disagreeing accounts at times, that didn't disqualify it for me. I wanted to study more. He said, when I looked at the Gospels, I assumed the witnesses were trustworthy, even though I was attacking it from an atheistic approach, because that's what I do. And he said, here's the third thing. Early recognition is important. I, I want to know who the eyewitnesses were at the moment of it. I got to get the earliest eyewitnesses, because I don't want legend to build. And then fourth, this is interesting. He said, diverse accounts affirm accuracy. You might be sitting at a Barnes & Noble someday, and somebody says to you, you can't believe the Bible. There's like four different accounts and they all say different things about Jesus. I mean, that, how can you believe something like that? He would tell you, I have had homicide cases where I've investigated three witnesses who had exactly the same account. And we already knew within our office, they have conversed together and created a story. He goes, the fact that the Gospels were four different accounts, in my mind, affirmed it even more and made me investigate. He said, if you study out timelines even more, you'll realize Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written before John. And so John didn't go into a lot of detail that Matthew, Mark, and Luke did because he wanted to fill in some gaps you hadn't heard of Christ. And he said it increased his interest in the story. On top of that, do you know that Tertullian, if you believe secular documents over scripture, Tertullian wrote and affirmed that the book of Mark was written listening to the eyewitness testimony of Peter. And so when he put together the facts, he began to realize this is a cold case that can be solved, that the resurrection is true. And he's written an apologetic book called Cold Case Christianity. 
Here's the apologetic point. So sometimes when we talk apologetics, it's like, oh, Chris, I can't stay with this. It's just too much. Here's what you need to know, child of God. The apostles are authenticated figures of world history who serve as credible witnesses of the life of Jesus. When someone says to you, how can you believe this malarkey? Here's the reality. You can use secular arguments to talk about the fact that these apostles have existed. You're not reading a book of myths. And so when you have this apologetic in your head, you say to a person who says something, hey, where did you get that? And you'll find, well, my dad said it, or I read it on a post. Like in the comments, somebody said it. I was like, yeah. And there isn't really a defense built up. Now, I'm not being arrogant. I'm not being facetious. But I know even in my own life, I have said comments that I haven't been able to defend. Apologetics enables you to build strength. We have a remarkable eyewitness to the account of Jesus Christ, and he writes to the church that's shaken and being bullied, and he says, hey, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, and you go, oh, the Bible, hang with me, watch this. He says, those who are elect, which is a word that speaks of being chosen, selected. And then he says, exiles. I mean, this is unbelievable. Let me do something like this, right? Oh, no, he's drawling. All right? It's not Squidward. <laughs> aliens? Exiles, the word means aliens. You guys aren't from here. Peter says, hey, you know how Nero's like, you Christians are crazy. Peter's like, yes, we are. We're not from here. We're aliens. We don't even have a lot of the same rights that the citizens of this country have because we are not from this place. We're strangers, pilgrims, exiles, sojourners. You're passing through. Your citizenship is not of the country you're in, whether it's a great country or whether you're running scared wherever you're watching this today. Your citizenship, Peter says, is in heaven. And then he writes to these churches and to these people who are scattered abroad. Now, how many of you love, love to just dive just a little deeper into scripture? Uh, let me walk into seminary for a minute, all right? Join me. Um, I want to show you something. The, the scroll of Peter, okay? They didn't have copiers, Google documents, okay? They didn't text each other the Bible, okay? They had scrolls. So Peter would write this scroll out with a transcriber, right? And he'd send it. First Peter is called an encyclical letter. So don't check out. Stay here. Encyclical means that it's written to be passed around. So when you read this before, you're like, oh, I don't know where that is, I don't know where that is, I don't know where that is. You know what Peter's doing? Take this letter and send it to Pontus, then to Galatia, then to Cappadocia, then to Asia, and to Bithynia. So they would have read it in, in Pontus and go, okay, now where do we send this letter next? Well, it says, let's send it to Galatia. Okay, Galatia, oh, where do we send it? Oh, Cappadocia, okay, send this down to Cappadocia. Because it's an encyclical letter, it is meant to be passed around. Why? Because they're dispersed. The word means diaspora. The word means to be scattered like seeds. But what's so interesting 
is often when you use the phrase scattered, that's an often apologetic word too. For when you're doing apologetics and defending your faith, you will find your goal is not to convince somebody or to win an argument. If that's your goal, you've already lost. Your goal is to sow seeds, to go on the offensive without being offensive. And, and so this scattering is kind of neat because it almost carries this apologetic term that, that carries throughout the book of Peter. He says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Bithynia, you're scattered abroad. But guess what? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, and for the obedience of Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling of his blood, he writes to them, according you're going to hear him say this word according. So he's writing something exciting to them based on something. Now in your life, you'll hear from time to time, is the Trinity really in scripture? Can we really believe in the doctrine of the Trinity? Does that really show up? Like I heard like somebody say the Trinity is not really in scripture. Let me do something that you can only do sometimes when you look at an entire text, okay? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father... In the sanctification of the Spirit, for the obedience of who didn't see it, and now you do. See, see, when we step back, this is actually called sentence structuring in seminary. When you step back from the text, you see things you don't otherwise see. And right here in 1 Peter, you have the doctrine of the Trinity, which is so awesome because everything Peter's about to say is based on the work of the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. He says, hey, according to the foreknowledge, you know what this word is? This is a big word that means foreordained, which carries the idea that God foreknew who would come to Christ. It wasn't like he looked down the tunnel of time and said, oh, Chris Heller's going to select me as his, as his savior. I will save him. Instead, he foreknew. And how do you think come to that conclusion? Well, because there's a selection, but also this word carries the idea of prior relationship. <laughs> David says, while I was in my mother's womb, you knew me. And all of a sudden, your theology starts coming to life. You're strengthening in what you believe. You're seeing the Trinity at work for the sanctification of the Spirit. This is interesting. The sanctification, this is a continual word. That's a continual word. That means it continues to happen. The Spirit continues to make Scripture understandable for you. The Spirit continues to prompt you to walk towards your salvation. Stay in step with the Spirit. He continues to invest into you. And then somebody had to redeem you with blood. The sprinkling of it. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, the covenants were often induced by blood. In, in scripture, we see without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. So somebody involved in your salvation selects you, somebody invests into you, but somebody's got to pay for you. Somebody's got to shed their blood. And it's Jesus Christ who is willing to do that, to activate the promise for you. Folks, Peter's saying, you've been elected and selected as a child of God, 
by the Father, the Spirit, and Jesus Christ, which tells me you have a remarkable identity. Why is that important? Because I'm sorry. Young people, no coach can identify you. It's Jesus Christ. No teacher can say this is what you are, whether they think that or not, because your identity comes from Jesus Christ. No boss, no, no parent, no person, even if they're a loved one. Your identity comes from who you are in Christ. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you have paid for a book that's at your house right now that you have not read? Poor stewards. I have many, so don't feel bad. How many of you have been given a book somebody else paid for and said, you need to read? How many of you think as a pastor I have that? How many of you think I have of them? You need to read this. I was listening the other day. You are messed up. Read this book. We all do, right? When you go to a college, right? Grandma's like, here, you need to read this, sweetheart. Heard your last text. <laughs> Saw your last post. Read this book, right? We have people, like, like, but, but we didn't pick the book. Now, how many of you have bought a book? I'm going to talk to the moms in the room for just a second. Not that the rest of us can't, but let's just talk to the moms. How many ladies have you bought a book just because of the cover would look good in your house? Ooh, that book would be awesome in the bathroom. This book matches my desk. Put it out. No intentions of reading it. Ask any marketer. They will tell you books sell a lot of times just because of the cover. You know, that resonates with us. Why? Because that's how the world does things. The world selects people based on the cover. See, see, the world invests into you only if you're worth the investment. You know what? You don't fit my agenda anymore. I got to move on. You're not really good at this anymore. I've got to do something else. And, and trust me, the world will seldom ever sacrifice anything for you. But I got to thinking, if the father foreknew me, it means he picked me out. He, he picked me out. He picked me up with the Holy Spirit and invested in me and continues to invest in me. And, and Jesus took a look at a book, if you will, that he wrote the author of the story, and he saw Chris on the top, and he goes, you know what? I'll buy that. I'll buy that. I got picked up, picked out, and paid for. I have remarkable identity. So I'm sorry, world. You don't get to label me. And Peter says, I'm sorry, church. I don't care what Nero says. I don't care what the government does. I don't care what is happening around Rome. You are labeled by your heavenly father. You're a child of God. Picked out, picked up, and paid for. Let that speak to those out there who think they're dropped off, lumped in, or leftover Christians. Yeah, I got lumped into this gigantic salvation thing. Oh, no. Oh, no. David reminds me that my Heavenly Father intimately knows me. And if it was just me, he would have died for me. And Peter goes, based on all this good, good stuff, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Oh, the other day I went into Wawa. I'm often there. 
And I, and I went into the soda, and I, I had the ice there, and I love good soft ice. Ooh, makes a drink even better. My, my guys, my, my two boys, we, we appreciate good ice in the Heller house, okay? And I'm like, oh, look at that ice. Certain Wawa's don't have the same ice. Look at the ice. Oh, yes, okay. And then I, and I start to hit the thing a hundred times, and I, and it gets to a point, you're watching the fuzz, and you're making strategic decisions. It's filling over, and you, you spill some out, and you look around like, okay, I'm sorry. Okay, and then you go up to the front. Don't judge me. You've all done it. Or done it somewhere. Put too much coffee in for all your creamer, right? Do you want some coffee with your creamer, some of you, right? And it overflowed. May grace and peace, here's how you can translate this, be multiplied to you in its fullest measure overflowing. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according, there's that word again, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I've been born into a living hope. I have a remarkable identity, but I'm interested about this living hope. This is a living hope. And everybody's like, that's great. I kind of like the song, you are my living hope. I get it. No, 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 no. It's not a dead hope. See, the God of this world can only fill people with dead hope. You'll hear dead hope all the time. Dead hope is, when you wish upon a star, I hope it works out. That's a dead hope. That's a hope where like, hey, I hope we make it to the next check. I mean, I hope it works out at my office. Those are all dead hopes. Why? Because they're based on worldly things coming to pass. A living hope is based on something that's alive. What's alive? The hope I have is based in Jesus Christ. Yeah, but he's dead. Here's why your resurrection's so important, church. The reason the church has hope amidst all worldly hope that's dead is that it's based on a living hope. It's based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not when you wish upon the star. It's not I hope things will work out. It's I hope in the fact that Jesus is alive. It's a remarkable hope. There's a book called The Jesus Files. It's written by Doug Pyle. It's very important to understand that if you based your hope on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it would be nice if there was some apologetics to be able to defend that. I mean, I believe it, and that settles it. But is the resurrection something that's just this mythical fantasy out there that these crazy Christians bought into? Or is it based on something? Whenever you're studying historical claims. Doug Powell writes, it has to go through a criteria. Historical claims, any historical claim, not just the resurrection, has to go through criteria. And here's what historians do to take people through criteria. It needs to have multiple independent sources. Does the Bible have that? Absolutely. It needs to have eyewitness reports. These are so key to, to claiming anything as officially historical. It needs to see some embarrassing admissions. It, it can't be everything deleted that's bad. Okay, delete anything the disciples do that looks bad so Jesus can't be believed. So if you see embarrassing admissions, I mean, would, would 
the Bible have a few embarrassing omissions? How about Peter denying Jesus three times? How about one of his disciples betraying him and taking his own life? He said the Bible's full of historical claims criteria. Is it attested to by enemies? Absolutely. 100%. In fact, Saul of Tarsus was one of the greatest enemies. Does it have early testimony? Some of the most antiquated testimonies are recorded from Scripture. And he adds this. Whenever we're studying historical claims, there needs to be a minimal facts checklist. You, you say, what's that? Well, every account that happens in history has minimal facts that it claims to have done. And you have to be able to check them off. And with the account of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, you need to be able to verify, was there, was the, did he die by crucifixion? Is that historical? Was a tomb found empty? Did followers see Jesus? And are there enemy accounts of it, not just friendly accounts of it, that could have fit an agenda? And what I want to do is quickly walk you through a minimal facts checklist, not using scripture, but using documentation, secular writings, historical writings that for some reason we believe more than scripture, that don't have an agenda, they're simply just recording the facts. And these documents I've selected are from the first and second century. In fact, one of the documents was written by a contemporary who walked this earth, not in scripture, during the exact time Christ was there. Walk through the checklist. One, do we have any accounts that verify his crucifixion? It's Lucian Samosota, second century Greek historian. He simply writes this. Jesus was worshiped by Christians, introduced new teachings, and was crucified for them. You have writings outside of the biblical account that say this thing has occurred in your history books at any library you'd like to look in. Second, was a tomb found empty? It's Taladat Yeshu. He was a secular writer who wrote a secular biography of Jesus. It's certainly not canonical. It's not always um, well-spoken, but it's this. He writes, on the first day of the week, his bold followers came to Queen Helene with the report that he who was slain was truly the Messiah and that he was not in his grave. Minimal checklist. Is there historical documents that say that there was a tomb found empty? The answer is yes. Third, we put our minimal said, followers saw Jesus. Flavius Josephus lived at the time period of Jesus. He writes this. Listen to how this comes off. It's so different. Now, there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man. Isn't that interesting? For he was one who wrought surprising feats. He was the Christ. He appeared to them alive again the third day as the divine prophets foretold these, and look what he writes, and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. <laughs> these are documents not in scripture trying to prove Jesus. They're just giving you historical background to the fact that this account happened. Here's the fourth. We need an enemy account. Listen to what Justin Martyr writes in a dialogue with Trifo dated AD 150. They, the Jews, have sent chosen ordained men throughout the world to proclaim that a godless and lawless heresy had sprung from one Jesus, a Galilean deceiver. But his disciples stole him by night from the tomb where he was laid when unfastened from the cross and now deceived men by asserting that he was risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. 
He's bought into the, the disciples stole his body. He died and they stole his body. In fact, there's other conspiracy theories out there about what happened with Jesus. Let's just grab this theft one for a second. That's been put to the test by our cold-cased apologists and others. And they said, if that's the case, explain the Jewish hatred. They're the ones who wished him crucified. They're the ones who demanded Roman soldiers be put in front of the tomb to defend the body just in case it was stolen. How can we then decide that the Jews were the one who hid the body? They said, what about Roman precision? You understand that these imperial guards knew how to do a crucifixion, and if the body lived, if Jesus lived, they would be killed. So you're just going to say that these two ladies snuck up to the tomb, went around the imperial Roman guard, and stole a body that they would die if it got out of their hands? It would take a lot of faith to believe in the theft theory. And that's the idea behind this. But what about this? If it was a theft theory, why didn't the Roman authorities just unveil the body so the whole movement would end? But on top of that, why did the disciples struggle to believe even when they saw him? If he stole his body and hid it, why did Thomas say, I gotta see the holes in his hands? The disciples' behavior doesn't even account for the theft theory. And thus, it's often been considered able to stand on no legs. Sir Lionel Luku, he is a famed lawyer who had 245, that's a world record in Guinness Book of murder defense trial acquittals in his 42 year career. If you feel that people who follow the things of faith are uneducated, then this at least you would acknowledge this guy has some education. And he studied the resurrection and studied all the facts I just gave you. And he said, I say unequivocally, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof, which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. Maybe you just are a brainiac and you just love super, super, super smart persons, people, excuse me. How about this guy? You ever hear of Ian Blakelock from the University of Auckland in New Zealand? Let's just say his mind is awake. I claim to be a historian. My approach to the classics is historical. And I can tell you that the evidence for the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ is better authenticated than most of the facts of all ancient history. Why do I say this? Believers, you need in your apologetics file this. The resurrection is a historically recorded event with supporting evidence that could hold up under any trial. Why is that important? Because you're going to hear things like, it's all stupid, it's just a myth. And I want you to be able to say, how did you come up with that? Did you know there's historical documents outside of scripture about the resurrection? This isn't just a, an agenda-based, deleted, all the accounts that don't match up book for believers who need a crutch to get through life. That's what apologetics does. We don't need all that, but it helps us know we're not basing our faith on something that cannot be recognized. And so Peter says, to an inheritance, y'all get an inheritance that's imperishable, which means it's not able to decay. You get an inheritance that's undefiled, which means it's unpolluted or unstained by evil. You get an inheritance that's unfading, which means it's contrary to earth's inheritances in the fact that it won't fade away. 
What? We're talking inheritances? I'm interested. How differently would you live? Anybody under the age of 25 here? How differently would you live if you knew at the age of 40 you were going to get a $500,000 inheritance? Ooh. Ooh, buy the house, hon. Get the car. We'll just kind of live, and then we'll pay it off when I get my inheritance. How would you live differently? Would you kind of walk around making sure everybody, you know, hey, you do know I got an inheritance coming. Oh, really? Yeah, just in case you want to be my friend. Because <laughs> at the age 40, let's go. Right? Wouldn't you live differently with this in mind? And Peter goes, you all have a remarkable identity, a remarkable hope, and you have coming to you a remarkable inheritance, which, which, which what, what, if it gets, what if it gets lost? Okay, Peter says, I thought you might ask that. It's kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Child of God, stop wishing upon a star, and put your focus on glory because you're loaded and you're going to get a massive inheritance. And you might say, well, can I get it here too? Oh, more than you know, more than you know, we are being filled with grace and mercy and the wonder of our heavenly father. But we have come into us a remarkable inheritance that in the coming weeks of 1 Peter, we will see how that impacts our living. There was a, a wealthy man who was an artist, and he had these awesome paintings, and they were worth millions in their collection, but he would never get rid of them. He had in his mind that he would give them all to his son, but something terrible happened. His son, who was a budding artist himself, he didn't have the clout and the authority necessarily of dad, but he was an inspiring painter. And one of his first paintings was a portrait of himself, for his dad wanted him to learn the power of painting human beings. It's difficult. And so he painted a portrait of himself, and it was pretty good. And it was especially cherished by the father. But his son passed away, even before the father died. And so now there's this massive inheritance with no one to give it to. The father was growing ill, had written a will, and when he passed away, there was an auctioneer who was told to hold an auction and sell his massive inheritance and fortune. Thousands gathered. Big money walked into that room, and they knew if they could get one of these pieces at a good price, they would be able to sell it or have it for their own collection. And so this massive inheritance is laid out, and the auctioneer begins the auction by walking up the son's portrait to start. Sets it down. He said, could I get a bid on this portrait? And everybody's looking at it. Can't bid on that. We got to save our money. The big ones are coming. Can I get a bid? Nothing. Give me one. Give me two. There's a young man who worked in the room. He had set up the chairs and got everything ready. He didn't have much money, but he knew the owner well enough to go, somebody should buy the, the son's painting, come on. 
And so he reached in his pocket, he got his dollars out or whatever, and he held them up to the auctioneer. He said, hey, hey, here you go, here you go, I'll, I'll get it. And everybody's kind of like, ah, that was a good deed. Good job, young man. And so for some $5 and whatever cents, he bought the son's portrait and, and off the auctioneer could start. And so the auctioneer went, okay, the rest of the auctioneer is boom, over. Excuse me? Hey, what, what, what are you talking about? Well, it says here right in the will, Whoever is willing to buy my son's portrait receives the entire inheritance. And they looked over the young man, and I think he said something like this. Let's go. <laughs> Guys, Peter says, church, I saw him. I saw him die and I saw him come back to life. I'm an eyewitness. He changed my life. I was a fisherman, and he turned me in to a brilliant writer, pastor, shepherd. Peter says, I have a remarkable identity found in my savior. I have a living hope fixated on the fact that, guys, I saw him, he's alive. And I have an inheritance that's coming. So pardon me, world, when I don't get real shook up if you don't like me. Pardon me, world, when I don't pout all day because you didn't think I was something. I can't help but smile. I can't help but be remarkable. Because you know what? I've been picked out, picked up, and paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? He defines me, coach. He defines me, mom. He defines me, boss. He defines me, audience. He defines me, nobody else. And if I have that on top of the assurance that I have fixed my salvation on a fact of history, on top of the hope I have residing in me, that means this inheritance is coming, and that's good. And so if you find yourself laying on a bus with your face down, being pressed into the ground so the rivets show up on your cheek, I hope you do what I did. I pushed myself up. I fixed my backpack that was too stupid for them. And I walked to the front of the bus. I barely acknowledged the bus driver. But you know what? That 11th grader will be remembered forever by Chris Heller. Get up, man, you're good. And I'm living proof, young people, that you can have the world try to define you and can actually put a fire in you that the Holy Spirit can get a hold of, that Jesus Christ can say, I got you. And you might just be able to find a platform where you can advocate for all those people left out in the hallway, sitting at their own table, being misfit by the world. I share with you, young person, adult, parent, whoever, we are not defined, amen, by what people say about us. 
We are picked out, picked up, and paid for, and we are loaded, okay? And we got a living hope. And so you can get through it, but you will need the word of God. You will need his power. And when you know you are divinely selected, despite those times you get rejected, you can become, ready? Remarkable. It's remarkable. You're supposed to live a life of discouragement, defeat, depression, anger, resentment, and bitterness. You don't have to. Unless you're defined by them. There was a petty officer. He, he, he wasn't really in charge of much. And he had this awful, I mean, this guy, his, his platoon leader was so loud, so, so bold with his words. He just shouted at the guys all the time. And I'm going to keep this G-rated, but he would say things like, you know who you are. You're nothing but a gigantic piece of wet garbage. At least she liked it. Well, one day, the petty officer, he was cleaning the deck. He was cleaning the deck, and around the corner came the platoon officer, and he saw him. He said, hey, you know what you are. And that, that guy surprised him like you wouldn't believe. He jumped to attention. Boom. I am a gigantic piece of garbage and wet trash, sir. And the platoon leader looked at him, and he started laughing. He goes... At least you know you are. And he goes, yes, I am. When you know how you're defined, you can own anything the world tells about you, even if it's funny. I pray, child of God, that when someone tries to define you, maybe it's even the devil in your head going, you are nothing and you're never gonna change. I pray the Holy Spirit whispers when you say, I'm a child of God. I pray he whispers this week, yes, you are. And you go, yes, I am. Heavenly Father, thank you for this encouragement. We need to hear from Peter during this time period, Lord. Thank you for changing him. Thank you for calling him. Thank you for taking a fisherman and changing the world. Because you can redefine people who have been defined. You can fill them with hope that they did not have. Peter was willing to die for you. He saw you rise again from the grave. And Heavenly Father, we know you sent your only begotten Son that whoever believes in you will not perish but have everlasting life. And anyone who calls upon his name can be saved and be a child of God and be defined, adopted, Chosen and loved by him. I pray this week, this church would be looking for people who have been left out, would be spotting someone with a sad countenance, would seek to encourage someone who feels rejected. But I pray also that this church, if there's anyone who in here who's been feeling harmed, feeling rejected, that they remember they're not a victim. They're a child of God. And help them to stand up in your strength. Bring someone alongside them to encourage them in this time of weakness. Do something remarkable. And when we pray, 
may we always say thank you that I'm a child of God and hear the Holy Spirit go, yes, you are, and respond, yes, I am.